chatting with my son and daughter and their friends about their relationship with social media this past week, I was surprised to learn that a number of them, including my own offspring, said that they had never signed on to Facebook or had recently signed off, although most had a highly curated group of friends and family on Instagram, which, as we know, is also owned by Facebook. Following the conversation, my daughter pointed me to an older blog addressing the seven ways to be insufferable on Facebook, in which the blogger describes how annoying statuses reek of motivations like image crafting, narcissism, attention craving, and jealousy inducing. Some of this gets amplified into those called influencers with thousands, millions of followers which seems the holy grail of the social media empire, everyone striving to become a piston in the engine of consumerist exploitation. Which got me thinking about all the ways we market ourselves. After all, social media projects a personally constructed presentation of oneself, a photoshopped picture, as it were, often literally. And as the blog suggests, this picture reeks of hiding in plain sight, a doctored image masquerading as 100% authentic. In this way, everyone becomes a curated product, an advertisement at least three steps removed from what's real, and a target for all other advertisers with similar taste. Of course, we don't need technology and social media to reveal that we have an innate desire to hide behind projected images of ourselves. We've played the game of masquerade forever. Seems to me that social media has only hotly exploited what's always been there. That we're all liars and pretenders to varying degrees can hardly be denied, can it? We let others see what we want them to see, and we hide the rest. Take me for existence. I'd say that again. <clears throat> Take me for instance. I've been an okay minister over my career, I suppose, landing in this modest house of worship in the middle of a fabulous city. I've accumulated academic degrees, assembling a diverse and talented staff and congregation, and you know, left to my own devices, I'm inclined to take credit for all of it. Not only that, but credit for growing up in a reasonably loving and stable home in the wealthiest nation in the world. Credit for the astonishing opportunities I was presented with. Credit for your presence. Credit for this place. I take credit for speaking the word of God. Even on those days, I know for certain in my heart of hearts, I speak for no one but myself. Actually, wearing a robe on Sunday is something of a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it serves the useful purpose of minimizing the individual and accentuating the long history of the rich tradition I represent. That's the point of the outfit. On the other hand, I tell you for certain that it's a disguise, a masquerade. Will the real Stephen Bauman step out from the robes, please? But if instead I were to wear clothes like this, or faded jeans and a flannel shirt like many preachers today, would I be more fully disclosed to you? 
or in the guise of a humble, all shucks, just plain old me persona, had I simply exchanged one costume for another with no one the wiser about the inner person. From the perspective of our spiritual tradition, there's a good one-word descriptor for me. And it's a word I rarely ever use in reference to myself, a word that's fallen out of fashion in mainstream churches. Sinner. I don't know if that's because we feel as though we're beyond it or that we've concluded sin was part of a faulty theological system. Certainly, it's a word prone to abuse in many church environments. In these last decades, we've been weaned on more positive ideas, such as people are all basically good. We emphasize the importance of positive self-esteem. That's a useful psychological concept, of course, up to a point. The power of positive thinking and so forth. But it is very hard to make complete sense of the world, let alone the gospel, without making some sense of sin. For one thing, Jesus is frequently accused of hanging out with people that are referred to as sinners. They seem to be his friends. That's what the righteous types were saying about him in today's lesson. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. <laughs> and I bet he drinks with them too, since on another occasion he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Lots of eating and lots of drinking going down with the wrong sorts of people. You know, with all the sinners. What's interesting is that those who are identified as the sinners are the ones who get Jesus' attention as opposed to the men of the temple. They think hanging out with the riffraff taints Jesus and probably themselves by association. These righteous types have already determined who's in and who's out of God's favor. Jesus starkly overturns their suppositions. The Apostle Paul, in writing to his friend Timothy, referred to himself as, get this, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence. But the spirit of Jesus hung out with him for a long while, which eventually led Paul to write, the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, as I stand here today, I would not go so far as to say that I'm, in, I'm the foremost sinner present in worship here, but I will say that I think I'm in good company. And the use of the word good here has an ironic sensibility. We're all in the same boat. While I have my disguises without even knowing what yours are, I bet the house that you have them. And while I suspect that a pretty good sampling of the varieties of human weakness is represented in those tuning in, it's all to the good that we've showed up. You know, there's very little that separates us from those outside church other than this one thing. We might know who our real friends are, that is, friends who can see behind the disguise and still love us. And we know for certain that among them is this man named Jesus. If anyone sees us as we are, he does.
You might recall that John Newton, the composer of that famous hymn, Amazing Grace, was a slaver who eventually renounced his profession and became an active abolitionist. His tombstone epitaph sums up his experience. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. That's quite an epitaph. John Newton is part of the Good Sinner Company. Jesus evidently hung out with him and probably sat at his table sharing food and drink. I find comfort in that. Here's the good news of the gospel. No masquerade artist stands beyond God's reach. This is called grace amazing grace. There is no so-called sinner, no outcast, no unworthy person, no one who falls beyond the pale of God's love. As Philip Yancey points out, the wonderful if maddening truth is there is nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. This sort of God makes us uncomfortable, edgy, grace throws out our measurements of fairness. Aren't we often very sure about those who don't deserve the same as us? We're generally very clear about who belongs and who doesn't, who's up and who's down, who's our equal and who isn't. The righteous types in the gospel lesson knew these things for sure, but then that was part of their disguise, their self-righteousness was part of their disguise. Tellingly, they weren't part of the good company of friends. They could have been included, of course. All they had to do was pull up a chair and join the party. After all, that's what the wayward do according to the parables. When the lost are found, they throw a party. No wonder there's so much eating and drinking among Jesus' friends. They're constantly partying. Those of you that know me know that I find this behavior quite inspirational. Now, there are some persons in disguise today, listening in, who believe they don't deserve such unconditional love. They know they are beyond God's reach or want to remain so. So they'll hold this grace at arm's length. Of course, to be beyond God's reach would make them larger than God. It's an inverted form of arrogance, silly, really. Others sense that to accept such love would result in radical change in their lives, like removing their disguise for good, like John Newton. So out of fear of discovery or deep preference for maintaining the disguise, they'll keep the gift wrapped up, unopened, on a closet shelf, and wind up living a much smaller life than they might, spending out their days exchanging one costume for another. Theologically speaking, I'm a radical grace man. 
How else to account for the elevation of a criminal loser into the sparkling golden dome sitting on a throne up there? That's the sort of startling reversal that lies at the heart of the culture of our God. Humans tried to kill it, radical grace. They still do try to kill it or ignore it, but it wouldn't, couldn't die and won't let go. I tell you, it is stitched into every inch of creation fabric. God's amazing grace. For God's sake and for your own, join the party. <laughs>